Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Happy Thursday, everybody. Oh, the week's winding down. <laughs> Great show planned for you. We got experts and guests, and we're also going to be talking about different relational styles, what to do, what to think, perspectives. As always, Question of the Night is up on our Loveline IG page, so weigh in on that. And of course, we'll be doing DMs. If you got a DM for us, slide on into the DMs on our Loveline IG page. And uh, Loveline's podcast, if for those that have missed something, want to go back and re-listen or share, it's podcast over at wearechannelq.com. Wanted to open the show by talking about a brand new term we got now. Now, we're talking a lot about doom scrolling. Scrolling through your phone, just seeing a lot of anxiety-inducing things, pandemic, oh, election. At the beginning of the election results were like, eh, not looking so good. But then we started to move into something called glee refreshing. Ah, yes, that happy feeling as you're refreshing and seeing all the election results coming in, moving in the direction of freedom and liberation and Biden. Still a lot of work to do, but it's still a good move getting away from Trump's America. So glee refreshing. It's that feeling inside when what you're refreshing and seeing on your uh, social media is putting a smile on your face because things are going good. So kind of take that word forward. Try to do more glee refreshing, less doom scrolling. If what you're following is making you feel bad, unfollowed or put the phone down and kind of scroll through the things, put a little bit of a smile on your face. Also, um, digital fatigue. That's something else we were talking a lot about. And uh, check in on that. Are you exhausted when you're on your social media? How do you feel when you put it down? When you put your phone down, you should feel good or at least neutral. If you're feeling bad, then you probably got some uh, digital fatigue, meaning way too much time on there or the kinds of things that you're looking at while on there. So before you pick up your phone, what, ask yourself, what am I looking for? Do I need something specific? Let me just go look at that. Otherwise, am I in a bad mood and I want to laugh? Good, find things like that. <laughs> you know what I mean? But we should be using our technology and service of enhancing ourselves, our mental health and our lives, not the opposite. So check in how you feel during and after, right? No more digital fatigue. Um, also, the movie Witches, it was a remake. I, I wish they had stopped doing all these remakes because the originals are always better and people miss out on that. But Anne Hathaway's in it. Uh, she plays a witch. It's on HBO Max, I believe. And it's getting a little bit of pushback, and I get it, from the disability community. Because they're saying, look, every time someone plays the role of someone who's mean, bad, or a villain, why do they often add a disability to make them especially criminal or heinous, right? 
it gives disability a bad name. It makes it just one more hurdle to get over. And I agree with that. She was like missing fingers. And there's just all these other elements where they're like, and we also used to talk about that with queer baiting, where the villains often had like a queerness to them, or if they were male identified, they had like a femininity and they kind of read as gay. And it's like, can you stop attributing these um, elements to a negative spin? Like make the lead, who's a beautiful, great person, also disabled, because there's beauty and strengths in that. Let the lead just happen to be gay or lesbian and not centered around that or being, you know, a struggle because of that, right? Starting to give just more enhanced, supportive, sustainable visions, but also it's just truth, <laughs> you know? But again, the disability, disability rights activists, which I try to be uh, as a good ally, that's in there. So let's stop making the villains also have disabilities, you know? Let's let some of the leads be disabled, uh, led and played by disabled actors and actresses because for many of them, that's the only kinds of roles they would get. So give it to them. Um, and also let it have a strength-based perspective and not just focus on, you know, we call inspiration porn where, man, they really overcame that. Thank God they were able to because otherwise their life would have been dark and desperate. Um, and also I just wanted to touch upon this. Y'all are going to be like, ooh, trigger, trigger. Mega church pastor Carl Lentz, I wasn't familiar with him, but he leads a big church here in LA where all the celebrities go. He also was working with Oprah. He was let go for what they called moral failings. Basically, he cheated. Now, I'm not pro-cheating. I think it's a horrible solution for a bigger problem. If you want to cheat, you need to address what that's about and talk to your partner about it. Hey, I want to have sex with other people. Hey, I'm not happy with our marriage. Whatever it is, deal with it. Don't make such a painful decision behind someone's back, right? That's horrible. But I also wanted to say cheating's pretty common. It's something we all bump up against in some level. We have a high cheating rate. And so we also have to look at the kind of relationships we're creating that are sometimes leading to a person wanting to cheat. Again, I'm not blaming the victim. I'm not taking responsibility off the person who makes that choice. There are so many choices as to how to handle a difficulty and cheating is never <laughs> the solution ever. It just harms you and the other person and the person you're cheating with. Um, so deal with your stuff. That's kind of what I wanted to drive home. I get it. Relationships are difficult. Monogamy is very hard. Most people fail at it. But like, don't create a relationship that, that, that needs you to cheat. You know what I mean? Deal with what's going on. Talk to your partner about what your needs are, right? Cheating's a symptom of something else. Deal with that something else. Cheating doesn't resolve anything. Although for some people, it's the only thing that lets them stay in that relationship or marriage, but work on changing what it is about the relationship or marriage that makes you want to cheat. It'll be better for you and everyone else. Give your partner who you're cheating on the right to maybe be part of the solution as opposed to just taking that away from them. So before you're gonna cheat, ask yourself, what is this about? What is this a symptom of, right? What am I trying to solve? And what is a better, healthier, more sustainable and compassionate way to solve that? Because there's many. All right, y'all. Question of the night up on our Loveland IG page and our stories will be weighing on that. And as I said, talking about different relational styles and what we need to look for and also what it means. And of course, we'll be doing some DMs. You are listening to Loveline with Dr. Chris on the new channel Q and radio.com. All right, and now we're going to go to our first guest, Dr. Alfie Braylon Noble, psychologist, author, and founder of the Acoma Project. How are you? Welcome to the show. I'm wonderful. Thank you for having me. How is your mental health doing right now? Uh, it's it's okay. Like I have my. It's been a long day, so it's just one of those days in general because I'm an avid meditator. 
Um, and because this is what we both do, um, I'm always trying to be mindful of it and take care of it. So overall, good. Today's just been a long day. All right. Well, thank you for taking time to be with us. Um, have you personally found any new interesting hobbies or forms of self-care? Because it's something I've been tracking where people out of the blue are all of a sudden bakers. They're crocheting. How about yourself? <laughs> yeah. So for me, it's really been step aerobics. Right. So I'm Gen X. So I'm dating myself. Um, so I have a step that I look, I'm going to tell the truth. <laughs> I've had a, I have a step that I've had since I had my kids. My kids are now 14 and 16. And I pulled it back out during um, the pandemic and found this guy. He's so awesome. His name's Phil Whedon, the gifted one. And I'm just like obsessed. And I'm also a hip hop head. Okay. So he does step with hip hop. So that's what I've been doing. All right. I mean, of all of all the new things to stumble into, that's a pretty good one, right? It's yeah. pretty positive. Yeah. So right now we're talking a lot, a lot, a lot about things like self-care. Um, but yet I have some people that are still really not familiar with that. So when we talk about self-care, how do you define that? To me, self-care is really, I have this thing I say to people, it's finding your baseline. So it's really figuring out what works for you on a day-to-day -day basis to allow you to feel comfortable in your own skin, to allow you to feel relatively calm. We're not seeking great happiness or you know low lows, just kind of want to be in the middle um, and finding the ways to sustain that day in and day out. That's what self-care is to me. I, and I love what I love the qualifier you put on there that it's it, it's it's an in between. It's not a high high because I think we have to drop the expectations on ourselves right now. Where that's kind of what I'm saying to people is like if you're given sixty percent, like that's pretty good right now. We're kind of like knocking everything down a little bit, right sizing it. Is that what you're also saying? Absolutely. Like you have to, and you also have to make it good for you, right? So it needs to be right size. I love that terminology. It needs to be right size for you. Your right size and my right size might be completely different because of so many different factors. So yeah, that's exactly right. That nails it. And, and also just other people's self-care isn't always going to necessarily feel nourishing to us. I know people, like I said earlier, were talking a lot about baking and cooking. For me, that's actually very stressful. That's nothing that soothes me. That's nothing that grounds me. And so it's also, uh, you, would you agree about checking in with our body and saying, how does this actually feel internally? Yes, it, it is about, I'm sorry to get so excited about it, but it really is important to think about it from the perspective of what works for us personally, right? And so I think part of where we get lost is we don't think about the personal aspect of it. We don't think about what's important for us as individuals because we're so focused on outward appearances and what everybody else is doing. So it really is about coming back to center, coming back to yourself and identifying specifically what works for you. And you may have to try a couple different things before you find that thing that works for you. And if you can't find that thing, it might be step aerobics, right? <laughs> That's exactly right. <laughs> that might be your yeah. thing. Dr. Alfie Braylon Noble, psychologist, author, and founder of the Acoma Project. Um, so let's talk a little about the Acoma Project because doing a little research, I thought it. it I, I think it's it sounds phenomenal. I also think that there's embedded in it a really important message. Um, and what I walked away with in terms of the message was there's a lot of people that do still think mental health services are for white people or wealthy people. And so talk to us a little bit about how your project is trying to dismantle and challenge that. Sure. So I'm. Uh recovering academic, I always say that. I spent 20 years in traditional academia in departments of psychiatry. And oh, one yes. of the things I learned, <laughs> right? Oh my God, that's a whole nother show by itself, <laughs> like surviving academia, right? So um, during that time, I realized that a lot of what we use um, in terms of the methods that we, and interventions that we create, don't necessarily feel very culturally grounded or centered for people of di racially diverse backgrounds, right? Or if you're queer, right? Uh, have a, a different gender identity, 
some of this stuff doesn't necessarily feel like it fits for you. And so with the ACOMA project, what we want to try to do is a couple things. We want to engage more people, right? So we want our message to get out there more and more. Um, we want to reach more people. We just want people to hear the message, uh, you know, even if they don't engage with it. And the most important thing is we want to change minds. And so our ways of doing that are to find culturally relevant tools. If they don't exist, we build them through research in collaboration with people in communities with a focus on teens and young adults, where I think the biggest thing that we do that's most important is we collaborate. We don't go out and tell people this is what you need to do. We sit down, have a conversation. And and that's and I love that you brought us back to that because I made a note to ask you about that. The community engagement piece. Because I think um thus far we we often just we put too much trust, I think, in the mental health system, assuming that it was made for everyone. And I think now we're starting to, much like your program does, really kind of challenge that. And so talk to us a little bit about what community engagement means. Community engagement essentially means working with people in community, not dictating to them. So traditional research is really what something like we call helicopter research. So you sort of fly in, tell people what you're going to give them, hope that they accept it or demand that they accept it, and then you fly back out never to interact with them again. Community engagement is more about from the time you start conceptualizing an idea. Oh, I want to study depression. You go into communities and sit with people and ask them, what does depression mean to you? If you had to fix it, how would you fix it? Um, how would you communicate with people about it? And you learn from them. So I'll call the people that I work with community scholars. They're the experts. I'm not the expert in their lived experience. And that's community engagement. Beautifully said, because I know as, as myself, when I was a youth, I, I definitely felt disconnected from, you know, both the therapists I was seeing, because I, I just didn't feel like this was someone who could relate to my experiences. But I also often felt very disempowered by some of therapy. And if nothing else, the goal of therapy should be at least empowerment. At a minimum, it should be empowerment because empowerment is the thing that's going to make it stick. I'm like literally right before we started talking, I was finishing up a grant. And that was one of the things I like literally just typed that. It's about empowerment over the long term. It's not about let me go in and give you a couple tools that maybe you'll use, maybe you won't. It's about me asking you what do you need and then equipping you with the tools that fit for you going all the way back to how you and I started at the beginning. What do I need for me? What does self-care look like for me? That's our goal. I love that. I love that. And then just quickly, um, telehealth. You know, uh, I was fighting it at first. I was someone who thought all the work had to happen, right? In my office, face-to-face. -face. I want to see you. I want to track you. I want to check in my own body. But I've, I've actually been happily surprised that telehealth has gotten a little bit better. Well, not a little bit, but far better than I thought. So for those that are unsure about entering the therapy because of the pandemic, because of their fear of therapy in general or telehealth, what would you say to them? I would say telehealth feels like a good way to dip your toe in the water. If you have a set of headphones where nobody can hear the conversation except for you and the person you're talking to, if you're that fortunate. If you have to go into the bathroom and talk to your device um, to get the support, it really is a way for you to test it out. I think the other thing that's really cool is you don't have to drive and park your car in front of somebody's office that is clearly labeled mental health professional, right? LCSW, PhD, MD, whatever the case may be. So this is a way to, I think, give people access who may have never otherwise considered uh, going into care. So telehealth, I'm with you. I love it. At first I was skeptical, but I really do think it's it's a way, a way to uh, drive down disparities. Beautiful. Dr. Alfie Braylon Noble, thank you so much for being a part of our show and for all the work you're out there doing. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Have a beautiful night.
All right, y'all, we are back, and now it's time to slide into those DMs. Sliding into the DMs. Sliding into DMs is brought to you by our friends at Trojan Condoms because it's a big old sex world. We want you to explore with confidence. Here we go. Hey, Dr. Chris, I read this article and wanted to know what you thought about it. The article is about love at first sight. It might be more complex than you think. What do you think about that? Well, I'll tell you what I think about it. <laughs> love at first sight is not usually love at first sight. It's often lust at first sight. Why? Well, because we can't love someone when we don't know them, right? It's lust. And that's okay. That's not a bad thing. We need that lust because that lust is what makes us get their attention. That lust is what empowers us to walk across the room and ask them out or to swipe right. And uh, it's hormonal and that's okay. You're just attracted to them. You have no idea who they even are, right? We haven't engaged them enough, but we're in love with the idea of them. We're in love with the surface of them. And that's okay. That's what draws us in. So it keeps us coming back. And then as we get to know them, we then assess compatibility because in the beginning, it's just chemistry. Are they hot? Are they sexy? Does my body want their body? And then it becomes about compatibility. What happens when our personalities come together? What do we create? What do we co-create? And is that what I want? And then we look at compatibility, all the different levels. First one is psychological, psycho-emotional. You know what I mean? Do we have the same range of depth, the same level of closeness? Uh, what does it feel like to be with them? Then physical, sexual, affectional. Are we sexually compatible? Do we want the same things in the same ways, right? Then it's social. Do we like to do the same events on the weekends and holidays? Are they drinkers and I'm a non-drinker? Do they like bars and I like the outdoors? Assessing those pieces. Um, and then finally, ethical compatibility. What is their view on the world and politics? Because that matters and infused with everything. What we say, words we use or don't use, how we uh, talk about people, um, all those different things matter. And you want multiple levels of compatibility so that when one of them is kind of absent, we still have these other ones to rely upon. It strengthens it. But if we only have one level, like they're just hot, oh man, you'll have a lot of passion, but you're going to be miserable and it won't have a lot of sustainability because those other factors mean more. Um, you want sexual and, and, and compatibility on that level, but that's not enough to give you long-term happiness. You really need the psychological compatibility, some of the ethical, some of the social. And if that's not there, it's not going to feel good. And when those things aren't there, thank God you have that chemistry and fire and passion because that's what keeps you together is you're not getting along well right now, but thank God we are so hungry for each other. That's why, again, you want as much of that as possible because it all kind of feeds into itself. But again, at times one will be absent, right? Like due to illness, travel, how we feel about our bodies, medication, we might not be interested in sex. So thank God that we like to hike together and have certain kinds of conversations and all that because that's what keeps us together, right? If we didn't have that, we got nothing if it's just sex, right? And for people where it's just sex, just have a sexual relationship. It's not meant to be more. But for people where all that other those other levels are there, that's going to be more robust. And that's what gives you more long-term sustainability and long-term happiness in a relationship. Because our lives aren't built around sex. You know what I mean? It's a small percentage of the time. It's a time issue. It's an energy issue. Stay hydrated, but still. Um, we rely on those other factors, right? When you're walking, spending time at home or going to dinner, it's those other factors, the ethical and the psychological, emotional that really matter in those moments. doesn't matter how hot they are. That gets old very quickly. And <clears throat> as we move into a relationship where we want a lot of consistency, some of that fire starts to drop. And so thank God for these other levels because that's what keeps you kind of hanging on and coming back. So it's, it's, a, it's a comprehensive thing, but don't confuse chemistry with compatibility. And early on, that love is going to be more chemistry-based. You don't, you don't know that person, right? So you love the idea of them. And then as you get to know who they actually are, which takes months, 
right? You have to have different encounters with them. What's it like with them on the weekend? What's it like with them during the week? What's it like with them during a holiday? What's it like with them when you've had a rough time or they've had a rough day, right? And once we start to encounter all those things, then we can really assess the other levels and we can really use words like love, right? Because we really can believe that we can trust it, us, them, because we've been through things. Because it's through conflict that we really learn what, what we're made of, right? That's what tells me more about a couple is how they manage conflict. Do they resolve it well? Do they stay together? And that's when trust is built. Trust is not built when things are good. Enjoy things when they're good. That's not when trust is built. Trust is built through times of conflict when they're still there and we resolve well. Bam, focus on that. All right, coming up next, we're gonna be talking about some attachment style stuff. Basically, it just means relational styles and how it's really important to be aware of ours and theirs and what happens when we come together. Dictates emotional health and mental health. All right, y'all, question of the night as always is also up on our Loveland IG page in the story, so weigh in on that. We'll be right back with Doreen Dodge McGee to talk more about technology and how it's let us down. You are listening to Loveline with Dr. Chris on the new channel Q and radio.com. All right, let's now go to our next guest, Dr. Ruvina Bao. Um, so how are you first off? How's your mental health doing through all of this? Well, thank you uh, for this opportunity and thank you for asking. Um, I'm doing well under the circumstances. Um, some days are better than others and I try and practice a little bit of self-care on a daily basis to keep uh, me mentally well. Self, self-care is the important buzzword these days. I think I say that probably to about 12 to 15 people every single day, right? We're trying to stay as resilient as we can. Um, so I looked at a study and I wanted you to kind of unpack this with me. And it was saying that, you know, we're at a 20 year low in terms of mental health functioning. Do you think that that is all COVID related? And if so, what do you think have been the most important parts of COVID that have been maybe negatively impacting our mental health? Sure. Yeah. You know, uh, there's so many uh, stressors in society, uh, generally speaking, uh, for our youth, for our um, general population and, you know, our workforce. And particularly now with COVID, uh, we're finding that um, mental wellness is, uh, is, is really on the forefront. Um, we need to highlight mental wellness. People are feeling very stressed, um, understandably so, because there is a pandemic, um, there's a lockdown. We're not able to um, be with our loved ones. There is a, a lot of sickness. There's a tremendous amount of uh, just, you know, anguish. Um, many of us personally have have uh, experienced uh, either the disease or loved ones who have suffered and are are dying uh, from the disease. And uh, we have a very um, uh, difficult, uh, you know, climate in general with uh, a very polarized uh, community. So there are so many stressors that are right now uh, prevailing that are creating a lot of stress in, in people's lives. And so needless to say, mentally, um, it is impacting people in a negative way. Um, with uh, with their mental wellness, and, and I and I know culturally we we are confident and happy to legitimize physical health and physical impairment. Mental health is something that we're still working on building confidence talking about. I think that's the one positive thing I want to come out of COVID is more recognition on mental health and mental well being, as you said. Um, one of the things we don't confidently talk enough about, and I think we have to start, is suicide. I think that word is hard for many to say or many to even use as a way to check in on those around them. Um, how do we start to normalize that discussion? Yeah, 
I'm so glad you um, asked that question. You know, the key operative word is normalizing that discussion, like you rightly pointed out. Um, I think in our society, we have focused so much on, um, you know, the physical well-being. Um, uh, it's a very image-focused society. And so if there are uh, things that people are um, experiencing that have to do with uh, mental uh, illness, then those are typically stigmatized. Our society has uh, tended to stigmatize mental health uh, issues in general. And uh, suicide is the uh, really uh, something that uh, we find that people are not very comfortable talking about. And so this is something that we really want to emphasize and encourage in the field of behavioral health, that there is no, there should be no shame in talking about uh, how you're feeling. Your emotional wellness is, is as, if not more important than your, than your physical well-being. A hundred percent. And it's so fascinating just being out in the world myself, where if I try to practice that and try to be part of normalizing and I discuss, you know, maybe I'll say I had a hard day today. I was a little anxious or I had some depression. It's fascinating to see how people get very uncomfortable with those topics. So it reminds us how much work there is to be done. So in terms of mental wellness and suicide prevention, um, what are some of the key uh, factors that a loved one would want to look for to indicate that maybe they need to talk to someone about their possible suicidality? Right. I think the first thing is to be very patient with the uh, with your loved one. Uh, just sit down, reach out to them, uh, express your concern, be genuine in how you're reaching out to them. Um, look for warning signs. There are um, always, you know, when somebody has contemplated suicide, you'll see that there are a lot of warning signs prevailing. And time and again, uh, lost survivors have mentioned, I wish I had known about this. Um, look for signs such as people will talk about um, you know, ways to end their lives. They will talk about, uh, or they would may maybe increase their alcohol or drug use. They will express the feeling of hopelessness, desperation. Uh, you might find they're giving away their uh, belongings. They, uh, you might find they put uh, their affairs in order. There might be reckless behavior, um, change in sleep patterns, uh, mood uh, changes. There might be a lack of sense of purpose. Um, Oftentimes they talk about being a burden to others. Um, so there are many things, uh, these, these warning signs that I just listed, uh, you, you'll find uh, if you pay attention, the first step of course is to reach out to your loved one, be there in a very non-judgmental way uh, for, for them, sit down, listen to them, make contact and, and actually have an honest conversation with them. Um, about how they're feeling. I love that. Make contact and have an honest conversation about how they're feeling. I think some people are worried that if they bring certain topics up that somehow it's bringing it into reality or supporting it. And would you agree that no, in, in fact, sometimes we need a loved one to approach us and say, are you thinking about this, that, are you struggling, correct? You're on point. Uh, absolutely. It is really a myth uh, that we really need to bust out there that, um, uh, you know, talking about suicide uh, puts ideas in people's head. This is a myth. In fact, if if we are open to talking about suicide uh, uh, concerns openly and honestly with our loved ones, then then more often than not, you'll notice that they are actually 
really seeking that that hand, that helping hand, that hand that reaches out to them because you're showing concern. Um, you're understanding that they are experiencing deep emotional pain. Uh, people who have considered suicide, they don't want to die. They want to end their pain. Beautifully and so said. starting that conversation really is the first step. And I know that you and the OC are working on a phenomenal campaign. Tell our listeners a little bit about that. Yes, we are very uh, excited. Uh, through uh, CARES Act dollars, we have actually been very actively involved in this campaign. It's called Health is Here OC. Um, I would encourage your listeners to go to helpishereoc.com. So I'm really excited you asked me about this campaign. I would encourage your listeners to go to helpishereoc.com. This campaign is a suicide prevention awareness campaign that encourages those who might be struggling with their mental health or thinking about suicide to really reach out for help. Um, At this website, we encourage people to uh, get familiar with the warning signs and we have plenty of helpful resources including a lot of links to local support services beautiful thank you for the work you're doing dr bufana rao have a beautiful holiday and thank you for being a part of our show thank you very much for having me here Alrighty, we are back and we're going to talk about something that i think is one of the more important things you can ever learn about relationships and it's a very very intellectual hyper-academic topic. It's called attachment theory, and maybe some people are familiar with it. It's definitely rooted in what we call interpersonal neurobiology, which just means that we have literal research that examines both the psychological components of this, but also the biological things. And what it really teaches us is that when you form an attachment with someone, and I'm going to clarify what that means, uh, your, your brain and your nervous system really wire together, right? We're just separated by skin. Our brain is truly a social organ. It's created socially. Uh, We do the most learning within social experiences. Um, Interacting and relational moments are what really reorganize our brain. And attachment takes time. You know, early on in a relationship, you can feel very strongly about someone and believe and use all sorts of powerful words. Uh, Believe that it's forever. Believe that we're a perfect match. Believe that we're in love and and go with that. I'm not really worried about what you call it. Yeah, you can say you can fall in love within a couple minutes. Sure, you can. It can feel very, very, very strong. But in the beginning of a relationship, it's important to also recognize, though, that we cannot assess compatibility. Compatibility takes time. Compatibility is when we see what happens when our two personalities come together throughout a period of time and around difficult moments and through the holidays. But we have to really see what what do these people create together? Because who we are within relationships are going to be contextualized. Uh, Who the partner is matters. And so each relationship, we can look like a very different relational person. But the bigger point is that in the beginning, everything's driven by lust and hormones and attraction. And that's great. We need that. But that's more about chemistry, right? But compatibility takes time to be shown. And if you're looking for a long-term, committed, attached relationship, that takes even longer. Attachment can take a year or two. Because what attachment is really about is our system's wiring. And it's about the psychological process of really building someone into our lives, being able to really trust them, that takes time. But also our systems wire together. And what we'll sometimes do is it takes both people showing up, uh, what really builds attachment, right, are certain behaviors. And that's consistency, right, and reliability. Is the person there for me? And are they there consistently when I need them? 
And so that's why it takes time because that has to be shown. That has to be proven to us, to our psyche, to our systems. We have to, when around you, feel soothed and that will calm our, our system versus not feeling safe around you. And all sorts of things are, emerge when we enter relationships, which is why I think relationships are the most powerful way to learn about what our work is. A relationship, as we've said, is a mirror being held up saying, here's where your wounds are. Here's where your trauma is. Here's where you need to strengthen things. So it shows us what our work is. But the whole point of this is to point out that it is not based in rules, regulations, and labels, but we will use them if we don't feel safe otherwise. If we don't feel like we've really attached to someone, meaning we haven't given it time to see if we're compatible, we haven't given it time to see if they're reliable and consistent and present, right? What you'll do when you haven't earned that or what you'll do when it is just not there is you'll then lean on things like, well, let's be monogamous, as though monogamy promises attachment and safety and trust. It doesn't. Or you'll lean on structures, right? Like rules, who you're going to see, who you're not going to see, how often we're going to spend time together. Or again, labels like you're my boyfriend, my girlfriend. None of those things promise attachment. What does is the behaviors. What does is the relational experience of being with that person. And if you don't feel safe or like you can trust someone, monogamy, marriage, spending every night together, that won't create that. Because again, those things are about presence, how they show up, what it relationally feels like to be with this person. And if that is not there or they're not looking for that, you cannot force or build that, right? And that's something that's really important to know that we have to find someone who's looking for an attachment-based relationship like we are. And also we have to give it the time. It's something that's earned. But also we have to know that that isn't something that can be forced if it's not there. And that comes up with some people that have had a relational wound, like let's say cheating. They think, okay, well, I'm going to get the password to their phone and go through it and tell them they can't be friends with the gender that they're attracted to and all these things. But yet they don't feel any safer. They don't trust isn't built that way because the way that they are showing up to each other isn't correct. And they're not relying on that. It's about how you show up. It's about, again, the relational experience. Your psyche and your nervous system are either going to be soothed and start to be able to let go and be at peace because of the way the person's showing up when they're with you. They are very present. They are very consistent. They're actually engaging you. They're asking questions about your life. That's what creates that, but not these labels of, let me know what's going on in your phone. You know, Who are your friends? Are we boyfriend or girlfriend? Those are just very topical things that we throw around as a ritual or a symbolic commitment. But again, what really matters is what we're actually doing right? Do we really feel like they care for us? Do we really believe we can trust them? Right? And that's demonstrated in real time, not with these structures and labels and rules. And so the attachment system is something that isn't, you can't, you can't bypass it. You can't hijack it. You can't lie to it. It's very honest. It's very real. And it's very dependent upon what both people do, but that takes time. And that's why we should always delay making any serious commitments for at least a year, it takes that that much time or longer. And we wanna give ourselves time to see what happens when our personalities come together. Because we've said this before, just because you're attracted to someone, just because you love them, just because you want a relationship or a marriage with them, doesn't mean you're compatible enough to pull it off. Sometimes we can't have that. Because when our personalities come together, what is created is just not healthy or it just doesn't work for one of us or both of us. And we can improve on that, but we can't necessarily completely resolve that. Some people are willing to hang in there anyway, and they're just never completely in a content or happy-based relationship. 
It's up to you. But others realize, let's just then be friends because what comes when these romantic pieces are expected or demanded just don't really allow for something that has what it needs to have for sustainability and happiness, you know? We'll talk more about this slowly, little pieces. Um, Coming up next, though, is question of the night, so still some time to weigh in on that. That is on our Loveland IG page in the stories. And then we're going to be closing out the show with DMs. You're listening to Loveline with Dr. Chris on the new channel Q and on radio.com. All right, y'all, we are back, and now it's time for question of the night. Question of the night is about your ex's sign and astrology. This is why they were the worst. So basically, we're going to talk about astrology tells us, based on people's signs, why they're the worst. Now, remember, astrology is a starting point. Some people believe in it. Some people don't. That's okay. Maybe just have fun with it. I don't know a lot about it. I'm not a heavy believer in it. I'm not discrediting it. I'm just saying it's not what I use to assess a relationship. I use chemistry and compatibility and more psychological and emotional components. But, you know, some people believe in astrology. Um, Don't make it a deal breaker, right? And we're going to see parts of ourselves in all the different signs, right? Even though some people are maybe more true to form than others. Um, so what's your ex's sign? Oh, this one's going to get good. Aries. Well, often the struggle with an Aries is they tend to be selfish. That's what the studies are showing. It's people that research astrology. Well, that's no good. <laughs> so I guess everyone that born in that time period has got a little selfishness. But what a great thing to learn about ourselves, right? Maybe that's where astrology can help us. It, can, it maybe points out a trait in ourselves that we want to work on right? We want to be better around that. Cause that's really what I want it to be about. Not calling out the other, but learning about who we are based on our sign. Um, Taurus acts like they're always right. Oof, that's a tough one. <laughs> Healthy relational thing is when we both feel like we have enough power and influence in the relationship, right? And if someone's always right, they dig their heels into their opinion. It's a very closed system and we're not going to feel empowered or cared for very dehumanizing. So make sure you always hold space for the fact that you're right based on your perspective or how you see the world. Uh, Gemini, it's, now, this is not me speaking. This is this study. It says that they're unreliable. <laughs> That's a horrible attribute. So be reliable. You can change it. We can change all these things. If you know that you tend to be unreliable, work on reliability. Show up. Be consistent. Follow through on what you say you're going to follow through on. That's how we build trust, right? Trust is shown with consistent behavior. That's why trust can be rebuilt by consistently behaving in a new or different or better way, right? Cancers, they're super moody. <laughs> that's hard to be around. So work on regulation. If you're a cancer and you realize, yeah, maybe I'm moody work on being regulated. It's not enough to say I'm a cancer. Sorry about it. Nope. We can always improve our psychology and our emotional health. Always. There's no such thing as sorry about this is just how it is. Nope. Learn about who you are and be better. And if your partner's saying they're struggling with an aspect of who you are, see if you think it's something worth working on. And if it's because you're unreliable, yeah, work on that. If it's because you're super moody, yeah, work on that. Regulate yourself a little bit. Focus on maybe being more well-rounded that even when I'm upset about something, I don't have to make a sad moment into a whole sad day, right? Just let it be that moment. Or if you had a bad day, don't make it a whole bad week. Or also do gratitude lists. Recognize that while things are bad, there's sometimes some joy or pleasure to be found too. For Virgos, always have to micromanage. (laughs) So if that's you, let go. (laughs) Let the other person be right. Sometimes try doing it the other person's way. You know what I mean? It's called flexibility. Oh, the wider range of skill sets. Uh, again, the question of the night is about people's star signs and what it means about them. And we're kind of looking at people's exes, but I'm also, I'm actually flipping it and using it so we can learn about ourselves. Um, a Libra. Often they can't keep 
They can't keep private business private. Ah, so that person needs to work on boundaries. Less gossipy. You know, it's a whole thing. I just tell the truth. No, be better than that. Have boundaries. People that are like, I just tell the truth as though that somehow then makes it okay because it's truthful. No, you hurt people. There's no mental health in just doing things that cause suffering to self or other. Be better than that. So learn to have boundaries. Keep things that are meant to be private, private. That's an important skill. That's where safety and trust is built. If someone says something to you, it stays with you. And even after a breakup, it still stays with you. When a breakup ends, when a relationship ends, it doesn't mean you no longer have to hold boundaries. Because if, if you don't, if a relationship ends and you just let it all out, you're a red flag for future partners that, wow, you don't leave lovingly and you don't honor loyalty. And that if someone lets you down, you're going to talk smack and they should be wary of dating you because you'll do the same thing to them. That's what that shows. When we go through a breakup, how we act shows our future partners who we might be. And that's why I always say, try to find out how relationships end because that's a sign of people's mental health, you know, um, for a Scorpio, so vengeful. It's scary. <laughs> I'm a Scorpio. I'm not vengeful. Actually. I hold no resentments. That's one thing. I'm so glad I'm not a resentful person. I let things go. I move on. I let, I let myself see people as they are, if they've been accountable and truly apologized and we all need to do that. Someone's accountable and apologizes. We have to let it go. We have to welcome people back to the, to the Island. We can't just, when someone hurts us, vote them out. People change and grow. That's the whole root of therapy. The idea that people change and grow. We all believe in that. I see it all the time. You know, as long as someone takes accountability and responsibility, they can be better. We can trust them again, but we need to see those factors. And finally, Aquarius, they think they're always smarter than you. <laughs> so just realize that people might have strength and assets in other areas that you can't possibly know everything that some people might be better educated or have more experience in something. Don't always think that, uh, you know, best. All right, y'all, uh, we'll be back in two minutes with the two-minute promise. Question of the night for uh, Monday is up on our Loveline AG page in the stories, so weigh in on that. And you can check out past episodes of Loveline over at wearechannelq.com. You can binge, share, post. And uh, coming up next, though, we're going to be sliding into those DMs. You're listening to Loveline with Dr. Chris on the new channel Q and radio.com. All right, we're back, and now it's time to slide into those DMs. Sliding into the DMs. Slime Your DMs is brought to you by our friends at Trojan Condoms because it's a big old sex world we want you to explore with confidence. Here we go. Hey, Dr. Chris, my name is Dee, and I've been dating this girl, Jasmine, for six months. She has a six-year-old, and we've talked about moving in together for a while, but I'm hesitant. Jasmine won't let me discipline her daughter. Bam, okay. Now, I'm not talking about hitting her or locking her in her room. Good, because children need adults to be better, and some adults will expect the child to do what the adult can't do, which is regulate themselves. Hitting a child, smacking a child, never okay. Name calling, never okay. Children need us to be better and more regulated, especially when they're not. So if our child's acting out, they need us to actually be the most grounded and regulated, not meet them where they're at by us losing our stuff as well, right? We see parents saying, don't act like that, and they're actually literally doing what the child was doing. It's like, hmm. Um, okay, so you're not talking about anything violent. Good. I'm, I'm talking about when her daughter and I are alone and she's being rude <laughs> or disrespectful, which she does often. I want to take away her iPad. <laughs> Punishment doesn't help. It doesn't. We know that now. Punishment doesn't change behavior. We, we see that with the carceral system, the prison system. Punishment doesn't change behavior. You actually have to show up to the child differently. And I'm not going to get onto a whole parenting segment right now. But um, yeah, you got to learn how to deal with that differently. Taking away the iPad actually probably escalates the situation. Because children aren't smart enough to understand. That's not going to be good enough intervention there. However, uh, I did it once and Jasmine got so mad at me and didn't talk to me for days over it. But I guess you should ask Jasmine, what is her preferred method of dealing with difficulty? And then do that. 
because it is Jasmine's child. You've only been in her life for six months. You haven't earned the right to necessarily stake a claim like that, you know, and who knows if you're going to stick around. So ask Jasmine, hey, Jasmine, I know that you don't like the way that I tend to deal with um, your child when she's doing what I think is not great behavior. How would you prefer for me to manage that? And then that's what you do because it's her child, right? You're only six months in. You're not a co-parent. You're just a visitor right now, you know? So you have to kind of know your place. And the child shouldn't trust you or know you well yet. You know, you're brand new. Um, she said, I have no right to discipline her daughter and that if anything happens to tell her about it and she'll handle it. Well, that's not reasonable because that's after the fact. And sometimes you need to know how she'd want you to deal with it in the moment. And so that's why I'd say to her, literally ask outright, tell me exactly what you want me to say and exactly what you'd want me to do when she acts like this. And that's what I'll do because you're her parent. I'm not. And I want to honor how you want to raise your child. Um, to me, that defeats the purpose of teaching a lesson. You have to get rid of teaching a lesson. If the child's young, lessons aren't learned. When a child's dysregulated, they need a regulated parent. And so you need to work on soothing and connecting, not punishing. So you, you have the wrong perspective, but most likely that's because you're not a parent, you know? And so talk to Jasmine again about what her preferred method is. She has no wiggle room on this. She'll never let me discipline her daughters. This is a deal breaker. No, <laughs> no, it shouldn't be a deal breaker for either of you, but you need to ask and honor and respond to what your partner's looking for for her child. You know, I think that that's very reasonable. Because um, we're, I, I'm a fan of attachment-based parenting where children don't know how to self-soothe. They're children. They need adults to help soothe them. It's called co-regulation. Children aren't born inherently knowing how to do those things. They need us, they're children. And they need us throughout the duration of their life. Even as adults, we need each other. Even as adults, we need what we call co-regulation, where at times on our own, we can't calm down to soothe ourselves, you know? And so, that's an important part of all of this. So I appreciate your question. Definitely not a deal breaker. Get the advice from her as to what she wants. And you have to kind of earn some more time and respect in there. It can't be your way right off the bat, especially when you're entering not really understanding child development and behavior, you know? Um, often children acting out are just them saying, I need attention, care, and to connect. So you have to see it as how, what are they looking for right now? What are they needing? And provide what they need. They're needing something. Children acting out aren't just because they're pains in the asses. It's because they don't know how to ask for what they need. They don't know how to soothe themselves. They're easily disrupted. And you have to be the anchor when they're the storm. You know what I mean? You can't go storm with storm, which is what you're doing. Punishment doesn't, doesn't teach lessons. We know that. We definitely know that. Neither does violence. So I'm glad you're not in on that one. All right, so that's our DM. Question tonight, as always, is back up on our Loveland IG page in the story. So weigh in on that. We'll be back on Monday. You guys have a great weekend. Focus on self-care and rest. Don't burn yourselves out. We're doing 60% at best. We're dropping the bar. We're still in a pandemic. We're looking out for ourselves. Self-care, joy, and pleasure. You know what I mean? We want to come out of the rest of this year feeling good, feeling nourished, feeling grounded, not all kind of beat up and bruised. So look out for yourselves, but more importantly, look out for those around you. We got to take care of everyone, right? Wear a damn mask six feet apart. Can't go wrong with that. You know what I mean? All right, y'all. As always, thanks for hanging out with me and please enjoy the rest of your night.